I said to um, those of you here earlier, in theory, I will be gone next week. Though my trip of this week was postponed till next week. But there's still a degree of uncertainty. So at this point, no class. But stay tuned. I might not know till Sunday again whether or not I'm leaving town. All right. Any questions or comments from anything that might be left over before we go on? All right. We're on number 49. Um, Sri Das, a man from India, was commissioned by the Master to teach on his behalf. Sri Das had a weakness, however. He was inordinately fond of women. The Master often scolded him for the shortcoming. Sri Das was bald and very sensitive on the point. He wanted the ladies to think him handsome. Master played on this sensitivity with a view to curing him of it. It wasn't the baldness itself the Master made fun of. St. Lynn, for example, was also quite bald, and the Master never even alluded to the fact. He teased Sridas, however, relentlessly. He also worried, he also worked much more seriously to help him overcome his tendency to view women as all that different from men when the difference was only biological. In telling me, Walter, about Sridas, the master said, I said to him very frankly, what you find attractive are only the grossly physical differences. You demean not only them but yourself when you view women in that way. Learn to see everybody as a soul. No one is his or her body merely. Very interesting, isn't it? Okay. Um, so, what I, what, I, what I had interesting here is that here's Sridas. He's, quote, inordinately fond of women. Master puts him in a position to teach on his behalf. You know, which meant that he must have taken advantage of his position as a teacher because it's the audiences, or if you look at all the pictures, there's a lot of women in all the audiences. And Master knew that he had this karma, but he still just let him have that position. I mean, what's, what's interesting and what, is, what becomes a kind of a theme through all of them that we're reading tonight is that... Um, Master just worked with people. I mean, he wouldn't have put him in the position of teacher if he didn't have the karma to, uh, to be a teacher. But there was a situation like that exactly at Ananda. It was way back in 1972. And one of the first people that Swami put forward to be a teacher besides himself and Jyotish was this man. I won't mention his name now, even though he's long gone from our world. Um, and uh, he was a very charismatic, very handsome, very talented and Swami, Swami left for India over the Christmas season and left this man in charge. And he was married, and he started taking advantage of his position because he was inordinately fond of women. And because Swami was away when it came out, all these little self-righteous young people attacked him, essentially, in a very... Um, you know, inquisition sort of way. And by the time Swami got back, it was such a mess, Swami tried very hard to untangle it. And he, he said to those who had been so self-righteous and angry, he said, uh, you know, you have to think about how to help the individual. He said, this particular man, by nature, he said he had a lot of pride. He said, and you had to give, you had to give him a way to save face, was how Swami put it. 
You know, it wasn't really that you had to excuse his fault, but you had to give him some way to extricate himself that would allow him to maintain his dignity. He said, instead, you publicly humiliated him, which is, you know, he was, just was unbearable to him. And as, as hard as Swami tried, he couldn't save him. And the man left, and Nanda never came back. And he really belonged with us. It was really, he really belonged to us and, and that whole situation. And so, but and then Swami said later, he said, I knew he had that karma. He said, but there would be no progress for him to protect him from it. It was something he had to face. And then, but then Swami said sort of ruefully, but I thought I could help him through it. I didn't expect to be 10,000 miles away, he said when it came to a head. Because that's, you know, Swami had been there. Because Swami wasn't there, nobody knew what to do. Because essentially the man had more position than any of the rest of us. But people just played that uh, self-righteous, you did the wrong thing sort of energy. Um, I, re- I realize when many of you were here, you may remember this, but when we were, went through that whole cycle with the Bertolucci lawsuit, which started with a married man at Ananda having an affair with an unmarried woman, um, then him repenting of that, going back to his wife, and Swami trying hard to save the marriage because there was a child involved. The child was autistic, so it was really a difficult situation. So once the man made the resolution that he wanted to restore the balance of his life, Swami supported him. But part of supporting him was, you know, to, to try to finesse things a little bit instead of just, you know, embarrassing everyone because it wasn't only him that involved, but his wife and child. And she was a very private person. She didn't want her business spread all over the community. So it was an effort, you know, many people knew, but nonetheless, there was an effort to finesse it rather than a, a public um, execution. Then, all those, not actually, not that much later, that woman, the, the woman who had been rejected, the unmarried lady, it all turned into a lawsuit. And it turned into a lawsuit of against Ananda because of our immoral standards, because here was this married man who had an affair and we just allowed him to stay in the community and we didn't publicly humiliate him and then drive him out. And it took me a while to really figure out. I mean, the lawyers were just playing, playing. You know, they, they weren't, nobody was being sincere except us. But that's how they played it because that's how it plays to the jury. You know, see how immorally depraved these people are because instead of, and it, it, it took me a while to kind of get it. But I finally realized what they're asking of us because we had tried to help him rather than merely condemning him and throwing him out. That was what we were being attacked for. That's how they had actually set it up. And um, I remember I gave a sermon here when I finally got it. I said, you know, I'd rather go down in flames because once we become that kind of an organization, what's the point of protecting it anyway? And that's how Swamiji, he learned it. He learned it from Master. Because this, this uh, being inordinately fond of the opposite gender for mere biological differences, as Master puts it so bluntly, <laughs> you know, is one of the three major delusions. And you can, you can talk a good story, and it's always so amusing to me, the people who talk the most self-righteous story are usually the ones with the most checkered past. There was one particular woman who was involved, actually, in that particular scene, and she just came on like with such a pious attitude and such an outrageous thing in the ashram and goes on and on. And then I, I meet somebody over here 
and I happened to mention this woman's name, and I do not know how it was, he said, what? He'd gone to high school with her, and let's just say all the men knew her. (laughs) I mean, he was just amazed. But you know, now that she'd reformed, she was out to get everybody. It's like people who, who lack charity usually have an uncharitable reason for being uncharitable that does not usually reflect well on them. Master just wanted to help people. I mean, I mean in, in somewhere, I think it's in this book else, I think it's in here, that one of the ministers at one of the churches was also involved with one of the woman congregation members and Master was trying to win him away from that behavior. You know, because everybody is a soul and we all have strengths and weaknesses. If somebody is advanced enough to have the karma to be in a position of leadership but is still struggling with one of the world's major delusions like so if 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 we're just going to cut people off and throw them out the window what hope is there for any of us and so master's example in this is extremely important to us because otherwise we just fall into these very small-minded black and white realities which leaves no space for real life. So this whole story in that respect is extremely interesting. And um, let's see, let me go back. I also, I mean, I just love, I mean, the whole thing about Master teasing this man because he was so sensitive about his baldness. It's just, it was very interesting. I noticed sometimes Swamiji would join in when there was teasing and sometimes he wouldn't at all. There was one time when uh, there was a man at Ananda Agni, who many of you know because he lived here for a while. He was a very, very good singer and he led the music at Ananda for a while. He got himself in trouble and he never really had the nerve to sort of face into the trouble he'd gotten himself into and as a consequence he essentially just ran away and we've never seen him since. But he was a very good man, a good friend of mine, good singer and uh, he liked women and uh, women liked him Usually not in exact sequence, usually the ones who, you know. <laughs> he was colorful. But we were, having, we were sitting at the table one day at our house and uh, this conversation got started. Swami just said, seriously, he said to Agni, he said, you should record the Shakespeare songs. He said, because your voice is more suitable for those songs than mine is. And... Uh, we all just, those of us who are all good friends, we kind of started riffing off of that, you know? And we're, you know, Oh, Mistress Mine and songs like that and just started teasing him, thinking of some of the uh, racier of the Shakespeare songs that Swami had even written to and so on. And it was very interesting. Swami absolutely refused to join in. And he just, he just wouldn't. He just, he stood there, very, he was very silent. He didn't criticize us, but he did not, I mean, and oftentimes he'll, he'll be right in there. It's not like he wasn't, uh, like he didn't enjoy teasing when it was good-natured, which it was good-natured. But Swami knew that, that there was a sensitivity there that shouldn't be dealt with. So he was just very quiet, rather stern-looking, but he just sat there. And then after we all finally noticed and shut up, he said, your voice is very nice, Agni. It would be very good for those songs. I mean, he just let it die down and then just went right back into it. So, when, but when, once when I uh, was still in the monastery and I had had long hair 
And I went to the IYI ashram, the Integral Yoga Ashram, where they all had very short hair. And uh, I decided to have my hair cut. But I, somehow there was a miscommunication, so they cut my hair about an inch long all over, uh, about as short as Atmajyoti's, or, or, which was very, very radical, because I'd had all, quite a bit of hair prior to that. And I was, I was just mortified on many levels. But Swamiji felt that my response was just ridiculous, you know. It was just vain and ridiculous, and he just teased me mercilessly about it. He kept calling me the new monk and, you know, things like that. And and who is that pretending not to uh, uh, recognize me? And and it was hard for me to take because I was already very embarrassed. And afterwards he, you know, sometime afterwards he said, I teased you so much because you made such a big deal out of it. You know, like, what was the point? Seva made me had to make me this big double double hat because it was so cold I had no hair anymore. <laughs> Seva and I were always together, so Seva put a bell on the hat so she would always know where I was after she made it. <laughs> it went on for quite a long time because my hair didn't grow that fast. <laughs> but I, but Agni he wouldn't tease about his voice because it wasn't appropriate. But me he teased about my vanity quite e- eagerly. You know, many times with Swamiji, I've, I've been in a situation where we're teasing and he won't, you know, because he knows there's something. That was, you know, the story about um, Judas being reincarnated and he was a disciple of Ramakrishna's and uh, he was still a little bit attached to money. That's how Master describes it. But when some of his disciples, front of his guru bhais, started teasing him about his attachment to money, Ramakrishna said, don't, leave him alone. And then he said he suffered enough on that. Wow. You know, they can feel things and see things. It, so it was always interesting. I mean, we don't have Swami to watch anymore, but it was always, there was always something behind what happened. That's when, and Swami talks about it later here. Well, I won't, I won't skip ahead, but you know, Master always knew what he was doing because it wasn't baldness per se. And then, just even the way he says that, when you, what you find attractive are only the gross, grossly physical differences. You demean not only them, but also yourself. It's such a, a simple and sophisticated way to put it. You know, men and women are just souls in different bodies. And if you react so strongly to the body, it's just reacting on the, you know, the least subtle, least meaningful, least lasting level. Of course, easy to say, not so easy to do. But it's, it's just such a, it, you know, the thing about the self-realization teaching is it goes right to the core of the issue. It doesn't sort of mess around with anything else. It just goes right to the core of it. Why is that the wrong thing to do? Because we're, we're all souls just wearing these bodies and to define someone entirely by the, so entirely, which is to say, if you're female, I like you. <laughs> I mean, you don't have any idea who you're dealing with. You just, if you're female, I like you. Or if you're female, I don't like you. I mean, it can go negative, too. I don't like women, I don't like men. What? What are you not liking? It's, it's, very, it's really well worth thinking about. Someone said, gender is the first thing you notice and the last thing you forget <laughs> about a person. But it's, it's only that. It's not really the person. Interesting. So, lots of ways that we have to grow. Nowadays, you know, with the genders blending, sometimes you meet people, 
There was, a, there was a person who waited on me in a store. I was with a friend, actually. We were with, the, we were with that sales clerk for like about half an hour, and neither of us could ever really decide whether it was a man or a woman. It was just the, the gender had merged, so we just really couldn't tell. It was very, uh, it's very interesting times we live in. It must be very difficult for a soul. I mean, it, you can transcend it like master, where you couldn't tell whether he was male or female because he'd integrated both. But it must be very confusing because this person was not advanced. They were just um, in a very difficult position, you could tell, inside themselves because their magnetism, they just didn't know who they were inside. Well, this is the times we live in, friends. Okay, any questions or comments? Yes, Chandra. Let's give Chandra the microphone. I was thinking there's more to being male or female than the body. Whoa, what was that? Anyway, go ahead. Maybe I'm not supposed to say this. <laughs> that's, that's being superstitious. Are we are we stable here? Okay, go ahead. There's there's more to male and female than the body. Um, there there's some kind of a, a feeling that that some people give off of maleness or femaleness. Well, let's back up, that Chandra. Um, male and female, men and women exist because male and female is a fact of creation. And and we are all equally male and female. And when we come into our, the fullness of ourselves, we come into perfect balance because it's just feminine and masculine qualities that we're talking about. And generally speaking, not always, if you inhabit a female body, it's because you have an inclination toward the feminine qualities and you, or at least you need to be living through that reality. And generally, if you inhabit a male body, there's an inclination that way. But when what you're doing, what we're doing, is we're trying to come into a perfect balance of a reason and feeling. So wherever you start, that's not where you're supposed to stay. Wherever you start is just your orientation, and you need gradually to come to the neutral, the neutral middle in which the way to put it is that you have equal access to feminine and masculine qualities and can simply access whatever is needed in the moment. And that's what Master was like, and to a very large extent, that's what Swami was like. Just whatever he needed to be, he could be. He inhabited a... I asked, you know, we've asked the question, because people always ask it, how come there's no women on the altar? And, um, you know, why aren't there? Why did not Why did none of our gurus ever come in female bodies? And uh, Swamiji said, generally speaking, well, he's first, the first thing he said is, to be an avatar is masculine work. By its very nature, the nature of the role of an avatar, it's a masculine job. Because it's not a job for a man, but it's a job for masculinity because it requires an outward-moving, world-changing, not to be a saint or to be even self-realized, but an avatar chooses to come back and will influence the course of history. The nature of that, don't think of men and women, just think of masculine. That's a masculine job. And so there would be an inclination to be a man. And generally speaking, um, men have more freedom than women. And so, generally speaking, those were the two answers that Swami gave me. Why? But a saint, like Anandamoya Ma, 
who was not an avatar, even though she was a Jivan Mukta, she was a fully realized being, but she wasn't an avatar. She didn't have a world-changing mission. She played the role of a mother. That was, that was her bhav, her spiritual way of being, is that she played the role of a mother. She didn't have an organization. She did nothing. She, she largely, I mean, she interacted enormously with people, but she mostly sat there. She didn't write books. She didn't found organizations. She didn't change the planet. She just sat there and radiated perfect divine love. But Swamiji said, and it's interesting, her, her teachings were extremely um, impersonal and uh, very, very Vedantic. She was very, um, she was just very masculine in the way she expressed the teachings. And Swami remarked that when she walked across, she walked like a, a general and the floor shook when she walked across, even though she was a delicate woman. So she was in a, in a female body behaving in a, in a way that was feminine, but was so balanced in herself that she also had a, every masculine quality that she needed in order to carry out her, her role. So that's, I mean, when you think, start thinking about it like that, that's where Master just says to this man, you demean yourself by just, you know, looking at, it, at the body. You're really just liking the body. And it's, it's such an insult to whoever's inside of it because they're not being seen in any way for themselves. And you're showing your own grossness by not being able to perceive or being so driven by just something so physical. It's very, it's a very, very good way. We need to, to start, you know, t- teaching children from a very, very, very young age. Swamiji said, well, you know, society's never going to straighten out. It's going to be several generations before it stabilizes again. And he said, we're going to have to start teaching children from a young age. You know, just the, the nuances of, of uh, sexuality and uh, the whole magnetism of men and women and the whole story because otherwise they just get thrown into the, um, whatever you would call it, the thing that polishes the rocks, you know, <laughs> and they just get tossed about in it and it doesn't uh, help them at all because it's just, it's just too confusing right now. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, I find it helpful when I think about the virtues having masculine and feminine yeah. bobs. Yeah. You know, when, um, if I feel like I'm being too of a male, uh-huh. and uh, if I feel like, you know, I'm being too much, having much, too much male energy, I could just think of compassion yeah. or kindness, and then all of a sudden helps, helps me balance those virtues. That's exactly what one should do. One should not just think, who am I? But what's needed here? What's appropriate and why not? Why can't, you know, a man can be a mother, a woman can be an executive, and you can just be whatever you need to be. The body's just your starting point, your karmic orientation point for whatever reason. You know, whether it's a a major influence or not. They said about Teresa of Avila, there was some some governor or something of a place where she was sent. He said, you said you were sending me a nun. You've sent me a bearded man. That's how she described her, her, you know, that she was just so powerful that this is no woman. And there's a famous story of Swami and Shivani years ago in Vancouver, Washington or something. Yeah, Vancouver. When there was some kind of a New Age conference and there were no women speakers. This was 30 years ago or so. And Swami was up there and there was a group and Shivani was with them and Shivani was already, you know, a well 
developed public speaker. So the organizers came to Swamiji and said, you know, we're getting so much flack for not having any women speakers. Could we put Shivani onto the speaker's platform? And Swami just, in front of Shivani, just looked and said, Shivani's not a woman. (laughs) I mean, he wasn't going to buy into the whole thing. He thought the whole thing was ridiculous anyway. But also, it's like, you know, she won't help you. I mean, she is in a female body, but she has an extremely masculine nature. She's just the way she is. She's very impersonal and, you know, just very masculine by nature, but she lives in a female body. So she would have looked female to them, but he knew she wasn't. And the other one, was, the other one wasn't as deliberate, but sort of semi-deliberate. He was walking with Nirmala down the street once, and there was some really, rather unattractive dress in a window, and he turned to Nirmala and said, if you were a woman, would you wear that? <laughs> and Nirmala said, well, actually, sir, I am a woman. <laughs> I don't think he even knew. You know, my observation was that he didn't know. It's just because it's just a gross physical characteristic. I mean, I've actually played that game. I'm not good at it because I'm very visual and I have a hard time, a very hard time putting aside what I see. You know, some people just don't notice things, but I notice every little tiny physical thing around me. I'm just very, very visual. But I've tried to see what it would feel like not to be conscious of the gender of the people you're talking to. If you were just relating to them vibrationally and you really just didn't think about that. Swami described everyone, he said, including animals, all sentient beings. He said, all look the same to him. They're all egos somewhere on the spectrum striving to be free. Isn't that an interesting way to look at it? Dogs, cats, worms, birds, you know, you, me. (laughs) We're just all egos on a spectrum with a certain amount of delusion swirling around us and our jiva pushing forward toward the light. It's just such a, a, a not a gross physical way to see people. Just so, so different. Interesting, huh? There's a lot for us to grow into. So, that was also, I mean, you've heard me tell that story, but when there was this couple that was separating in the community, it had been an odd companionship anyway. And I had been shopping with the woman years, a few years earlier to buy a birthday present for her, her then husband. And I pulled a shirt off the rack and I said, this would be nice for him, it's just the color of his eyes. She said to me, is it? Okay, that, that had happened years before. Then we're sitting at the dinner table talking about, with Swami in a small group, talking about the fact that, well, their marriage wasn't going to make it. And I said, well, you know, I just don't understand. And then I told that story. I said, how could you be married to someone and not know the color of their eyes? And it was one of those things, again, where Swami just, Swami, you know, he would just do these nuances where you would feel his vibration before he said anything, if you were paying attention. And so I had that conversation, and I could feel Swamiji was not connected to the conversation. And that's when he said, I never know what color people's eyes are. He said, I never look at their eyes. He said, I look through their eyes. He said, I look through them, through their eyes to their consciousness. I don't see what color their eyes are. That's just a gross physical characteristic. Why would I look at that? He didn't say that, but that's exactly what he was saying. I don't see people according to their gross physical characteristics. I see their vibration. And Seva was sitting next to him, and Seva had 
um, has still, but especially it was dynamic when she was younger. She had these huge brown eyes, just like the most notable feature of her. He saw Seva every day and had for 15 years. He said, like Seva, he said, what color, you know, and he, and he said, I don't know what color Seva's eyes are. And he, and he turned and he sort of peered at her in this sort of odd way. And he said, oh, they're brown, like that. Yeah, I mean, so it wasn't a joke. It was just like, and, and then you just realize, you know, this man's living in a different world. We're all just kind of here together and we're functioning, but we're not experiencing the same reality. It's, it's fascinating. Gross physical characteristics. Why would you define someone by the gross physical characteristics? If we, well, we define ourselves that way. But uh, it was very interesting, the 10 years that I lived in the monastery, when I was really associating, we were very interactive with the whole community, but we actually lived in a community of women. And we had a lot of interaction just with the women. And uh, you really became very gender neutral after a while. And it was interesting to me, it it was like at least with those women, partly I think because we were all so masculine in our characteristics, but we did not, being together did not reinforce the fact that we were women. It actually, by not reinforcing I realized that my identity was reinforced by its relationship to the opposite or to the complementary. But when I wasn't in relationship to the complementary, I went neutral within my own self-identity because it just wasn't being reinforced. The fact of being female was, was reinforced by my relationship to male. But when I wasn't in that relationship to male, I didn't have a gender at all. Interesting. When I left that life, then the gender, the concept of gender came back very quickly. It wasn't by any means transcended. It was just in abeyance. Or I would say very modestly in abeyance. Not really hugely in abeyance because when I cut my hair I was still embarrassed. <laughs> you know, and that was, I wasn't free by any means. Interesting how many nuances there are in this. Okay, so poor bald Sri Das who had an inordinate liking for women. <laughs> right? Number 50. The master on one occasion also deliberately embarrassed Bernard for the same reason. Bernard was an SRF minister who, when I knew him, conducted services in the SRF church in Hollywood. Certain women in the congregation had been saying they thought he would look nice in a turban. The master made no comment on the point. The master made no comment on the point. He determined, however, to quiet this little ripple of interest before it grew to become a wave. A formal Indian gathering had been scheduled. For the event, the master dressed Bernard in a turban. He wound a long strip of cloth with great care on the disciple's head, arranging it in such a way, however, that although the turban managed to stay on, it would slip lopsidedly over one eye, then over the other eye, and manage always to look ridiculous. (laughs) Did Bernard enjoy the comedy as Dr. Lewis had? The fact that he never told me about it makes me suspect that he didn't relish it at all. <laughs> it was the, he was the sort of person who might well have responded with Queen Victoria, we are not amused. <laughs> I love the way he tells this. It was an elderly nun who gleefully, but not unkindly, told me this story. That's really quite something, isn't it? But see, there you have it. So what does Master really think? 
Master looks at where you're standing and he turns you in the right direction. Bernard was a serious devotee, so Master um, was able to treat him a little roughly, you know, by, by putting him out to be humiliated in public like that and to have all the women who were going to supposedly admire him see him instead looking like a fool. Hmm. Very interesting, huh? <laughs> Once uh, Richard Salva put on a, a skit of st- uh, Star Trek, right, Star Trek, and uh, it was when we were still in that other building, and Captain Praver had a part, and they thought it was going to be David Praver, but it was actually Asha Praver. And we had gotten some costumes from Ananda Village, so we had the real, you know, the real stretchy things, the real Star Trek little onesies that everybody wears. <laughs> and when it came time for um, Captain Praver to appear on the scene, I just, I walked out in the little onesie. And I just, it was, I just looked so ludicrous. And it was so unexpected. Nobody expected me to be standing there that everybody just began to laugh. And they were not laughing with me, they were laughing at me. (laughs) And it was actually, it was really interesting. And it was actually, I I was able, uh, I'd grown a little since I cut my hair, you know. And I was just able to just, you know, be there. I'm not usually ridiculous, it's not my nature. But I I just stood there until the sort of wave of just glee over my foolishness had crested and then I delivered my little lines and went on with the story. But it's quite fun to just be taken down like that. I also once at uh, Ananda Village, I was very vulnerable to poison oak. I don't ever get it now because I never go anywhere that it is, but I, I was very vulnerable and something had happened and we had been cleaning out this concrete spring box or something and I'd sort of, I'd been like this and I ended up getting it all like here. And I get, I get it like a burn victim, you know, it just gets really superating sores and it's horrid. And, uh, it, and because it was all here and it was so sensitive, I, I had to, you know, skin my hair back and I had to just wear a big open neck. And then I got to take steroids, which I loved because they wired me up and made me really happy. But, <laughs> but in the meantime, I was grossly disfigured, but in a way I couldn't see. And it was, that was also, that was very interesting because I was just the same. If it had been my hand or my arm or anything like that, I would have also been conscious of it. But because it was my face, I couldn't see it, but everyone else could see it. So I was always, you know, just going around being myself and then provoking this extraordinary response, um, you know, in town or anywhere because of the way I looked. It's just amazing because you the difference between yourself and your body becomes really clear to you because I didn't identify with that gross body, but everybody else saw it. What could they do? Yeah, very, very interesting spiritually how you, then you become aware of all these nuances. Of, um, there was a woman in our community, she was beautiful. She doesn't live here anymore. That doesn't mean that nobody beautiful still lives here, but she, she, <laughs> she was a very... A very attractive young woman, just classically. So, and a very nice woman too, but also just classically beautiful. And she was as lazy as she could be. And she admitted it herself. She was said she was so lazy because she she said because she was so attractive, she never had to do anything. 
She said she never had to put out any energy to have anything happen. She merely had to walk into a room and then she could just sit down and everything would swirl around her. You know, people would just bend over backwards to... She was also nice. And so her looks were also sweet. She had a very sweet look. But she said herself, it said she said it made her so lazy. And she conscientiously started working. And at a certain point, she, in, in some subtle way, she, she just made herself less attractive. You know, she changed, she just, but she, she changed her hair and a few things, but she also did something internally. You know, it was sort of like she just finally realized it's not working for me. And she just, just shifted her consciousness so that she didn't have to deal with it so much anymore. But again, it's like um, a lot of times, actually, especially women who are very beautiful, they don't, they don't grow up very balanced because they get related to in a way that doesn't foster the best in them or like her, just makes them terribly lazy. I, I became witty because I was very skinny and I, I developed very late and I always had glasses and I just like nobody was going to do anything for me, that was for sure. <laughs> Unless, unless I, unless I put something out there for them, yeah. Just, you know. So I developed a, you know, wit and personality because I had to. <laughs> All right. Now, I think we're done with poor Bernard. There's a whole series of these here. Number fifty-one. One time, while traveling by car with a group of nuns, the master made them stop by the roadside on a main highway, get out, and consume a large, very juicy watermelon. He cut it into unwieldy pieces, which made sure the juice got all over their arms, hands, and faces. Not the sort of spectacle that women, especially young ones, like to present for public inspection. The master was unconcerned for their embarrassment. They, too, after their initial shock, accepted the situation with good humor. You know, also, in the times that master lived, everybody was much more gracious and refined and dressed well. You see the pictures of the young women who were with Master, and because they didn't wear saris and, or any kind of monastic clothes. They just wore their regular clothes. And so all the pictures you see, they're all dressed like the 30s and the 40s as women dressed at that time, you know, with hats and pumps and, you know, in nice dresses and so on. So they wouldn't have been, well, I point to myself, but, the, you know, everybody now is sweatshirts and jeans, men and women, and a little watermelon juice on a pair of jeans doesn't make a big difference, but when they're all dressed up as everybody was... And Dr. Lewis, too, certainly. It was just the way things were. To just be that informal was even more extreme than the story that's told here. But to their credit, you know, as soon as they saw where he was taking them, what difference does it make? I was remembering, I've I've been trying to reconstruct history for the book I'm working on, and I was remembering, um, Swami, uh, in 1972, Swami Kriyananda took the jewel and the lotus to Reno, Nevada. We had contacts in Reno, Nevada, Carino is not that far from Ananda village, so we would do things. And there, there's actually a, you know, there's a lot of uh, metaphysically inclined people there. You know, it's high desert, and that attracts a certain open-minded, uh, quite apart from the gambling scene. There's a whole other scene in those, in Las Vegas, too. It's just a different place. And uh, I think that was the time that Swami had us sitting in front of the Kmart chanting. I'm pretty sure that was the time. And... Uh, we were, he was giving classes and we were putting on this play. If it wasn't then, it was another time because it was Reno. I know it was Reno and it was Haridas and I. Because, I, I mean, I, Haridas is the chanter. I'm not. And to me, it was just like, I, I'm sort of, I've always been a bit of a bohemian. So it was like, all right, 
You know, Swami wants us to chant, sit in front of Kmart and chant. And, you know, I just would sit down on the sidewalk and do it. It just didn't bother me. Haridas says he just, he absolutely nearly died. He was so mortified. You know, it wasn't, obviously it wasn't happening for me. It was really happening for him. But he talked about it years later. And I just talked about how much fun it was. And Haridas just, you know, he just talked about how deep into his spine he had to go to be able to sit with his harmonium and chant on the sidewalk in front of the Kmart at Reno, in Reno. When you say it like that, it does sound a bit odd, doesn't it? <laughs> in Indian clothes. So he was in some pajamas and I was in a... Um, sorry. But again, to me, it was all just like, once I got that Swami wanted us to do it, like, let's just do it. What does it matter? Because, but, but when I cut my hair, he gave me a really hard time. So everybody has different pieces they have to work out. Okay, 52. You see, that's why someone once said to me about Swamiji, it's not only what he wants, it's who he wants it from. And you had to be careful when he'd given someone an instruction not to just go and say, oh, well, I can take care of that for you. Because it may not have been yours to do it all. And you could really just kind of mess up a flow of energy by stepping in there. It wasn't really what you could do, it's what you needed to do. So you just had to let it pass. 52. It's interesting to me because I have such a love for theater. Swami never included me in any of the plays. I don't think my past lives as an actress ended well. (laughs) And I think he was keen on that not happening again. Now I think it's fine, but... And the one time I did appear in a play up there, it was very interesting. That was the Land of Golden Sunshine. He never said one word. Not one word to me. Yeah. And later, I mean, I knew. I knew what I did that he didn't like. I knew very well. I, I sensed it. I, could, I figured out what it was. Never said a word. He complimented the people around me. To me, he never said a word. Whoa. Yeah. No, because I knew. I noticed that he wasn't, and I, I knew I could feel it. I mean, I could feel the aberration in my consciousness that it brought out. Which is why he never put me in anything, never put me on the stage. Even that, I'd, I hadn't wanted to do, but I got drawn into it. Anyway, interesting. No, it doesn't matter. Okay. In disciplining his disciples, this is number 52, the master tried always to lead them toward their own inner freedom and joy. Often the disciple, often the, dis, excuse me, I'm not thinking, what, I'm thinking about other things. I was thinking back to that. I have to just get out of that for a minute. I was thinking, wow, you're bringing up a lot of old stories right now. That's because that's where I'm working right now. In disciplining his disciples, the master tried always to lead them toward their own inner freedom and joy. Often the discipline in traditional monasteries is administered with the intention of suppressing people's pride. You hear that all the time. I've been reading a lot of these, been reading these uh, children's books about Catholic saints. Helen has a huge collection and I've been having a great time reading them. And they're all about these people in monasteries and it's all about their pride. Just whatever they can do to mortify their pride. Which is a good idea, but it's not so good when other people are doing it to you. Is administered with the intention of suppressing people's pride. The master sought instead to expand people's sense of self into a greater awareness of their true infinite self. I mean, in the same way, the ego becomes very small 
but it becomes small because the self has become much bigger rather than the ego just being crushed. Because if the ego is merely crushed and the self has not become correspondingly infinite, all you end up is crushed. See how different it is? The point is to get things into proportion. And merely trying to smash the ego doesn't necessarily get things into proportion. I mean, a lot of us carry really weird samskars from those lives. Sometimes, in the process, he could appear quite harsh. Though always he had an expansive purpose in mind. And certainly he never spoke out of anger or personal displeasure. It's important, he says, sometimes he could appear quite harsh. Um, For some time he made a point of scolding one of the nuns every time they met. She had a proud nature and predictably resented this treatment of her. Sometimes he he reduced her to tears of frustration. His scolding seemed to her both unfair and unreasonable. Sometimes, indeed, they may have been, for what he was trying to change particularly was her reactions. At last, the woman concluded that it didn't really matter. Perhaps, she reflected, he was only trying in some obscure way to help her. At any rate, since she'd come there to find God, she realized that his smiles of approval were beside the point. The next time he scolded her, she took his words calmly, even pleasantly. In the midst of what had started as a tirade, he stopped, smiled with approval, and said, I see you are learning. That's good. I wanted to make you more malleable. From then on, he rarely scolded her again. Wow. We don't have the benefit of Master walking down the hall and responding to us like that, but um, there's the beautiful lines that are part of the Sister Gyanamata monologue that I had to memorize. I knew that I needed, if I wanted to make the spiritual progress I really wanted, I needed a guru to discipline and guide me. I decided that until I had such a one, I would make life itself my guru. I would meet every experience with the attitude of a disciple. I would see every circumstance as a lesson coming from my guru. I mean, it's it's just very important. We really must be very careful to think, not to think, oh, if only then I would be different. Because the chances are, first of all, the if only will never come about. And who knows if you would be different. You're just as likely to be like Bernard and not be willing to take it. You never know. So it's it's the way to extricate ourselves from every situation. Why am I getting upset? Why am I taking this so hard? What is it that's really bothering me here? That's the Swami's book, um, Sadhu Beware. Um, which is is just so emphatic in terms of how you really overcome the ego. If your people misunderstand you, you don't have to explain yourself to them. Why do you have to be understood? You know, if somebody is scolding you unfairly, why? What difference does it make? Why are you reacting? Swami tells the story about himself in contrast to this woman when he got accidentally engaged with that movement of negative energy in the ashram right after he came to Mount Washington. And when Master got wind of it, he excoriated the group of monks who were involved, Swami said, but he mostly excoriated Swamiji, who had really been quite peripheral to the whole thing. And while he was being scolded, Swamiji 
kept thinking inside himself, but sir, I didn't have anything to do with this. But then when he reflected on it, he realized, but why am I resisting Master if he's scolding me? And so he wrote a note to Master and said, and said scold me more often, sir. Because he saw that it wasn't really whether he was innocent or not innocent. It was that when Master challenged him, he didn't want to be challenged. He, he wanted to push back. So, I mean, that's what we're really trying to work with is, that, is not, you know, to crush your pride. It's for we ourselves to relinquish the necessity to always be asserting our self-worth and trying to make the whole world see us as in the, for the great wonderful beings that we actually are. And it's, it's not having anything to do with them, it's having to do with our inner necessity. And of course, you see, if, if, we, if we have an expanded sense of self, which is what Master was always trying to bring us, if we really know that I'm a child of God and I'm loved by God and this is just my gross physical characteristics and this tiny little bit of myself, what difference does it make? Whether, you know, your tiny little bit and my tiny little bit agree or disagree, what difference does it make if we're seeing ourselves in this big picture? But instead we become very compressed and our sense of well-being depends on being able to, to hold tight to this particular concept and defend it against all attack. Now really, is that really what we want to do? So, let's take a few minutes to contemplate that. Otanda, did you have a question first? Yeah. I was just going to say, this is, it's also a, a, Nishkam sto- a Nishkam karma story because she's recognizing that her job is just to do her best and Master will smile or Master will, will scold and that's not the point. That's not Those the are point. just the surface level results. Yes. Yeah. And, and at that level, even though we don't have Master walking down the hall, we do have our own meditations that may feel better or worse or whatever else is going on in our life. And it's and that, you know, even in our meditations is not the point. You know, if we see a fancy light or something or just feel restless and distracted the whole meditation. Right. You know, it's you know, our the point is to do our best right. and uh, leave the rest up to him. Absolutely perfect. Okay, let's take a short break. You know, I was interested in a number fifty two which we just finished. I just wanted to say the word, I just, I wanted, I've wanted to make you more malleable. Isn't that an interesting choice of word? You know, because that's just the opposite of rigid, fixed, identified. You know, malleable is that you can just be moved and you're able to make changes. And you're able to respond to the influence. You're able to respond to his influence is what she's really saying. I guess that's how the word malleable means that you can be shifted. So it's, it's an interesting word for a disciple to contemplate. We need, I want to be more malleable. To be, first. Pardon me? First. Yeah, well, it, it's, it's freedom, exactly, to just be, be free. Um, what, this is what Master's talking about right here, and so I'll go right into it. Number 53. Sometimes when I hear the Master described as a harsh disciplinarian, I remember with a smile the following story. For he wasn't harsh, he was only appropriate. And when I, I, want, I want to use the word appropriate in terms of the word malleable, because, I mean, I, I hadn't really remembered this, but appropriate is a word Swami must have used a lot, because I use it a lot. It's like, well, that's what we're really trying to be, is we're just trying to be appropriate. 
We're not necessarily even trying to be nice. We're just trying to be appropriate. Whatever the situation actually calls for. But the difficulty is because we're not malleable, we're rigid and we're fixed, we have a certain sort of number of responses that we have access to. And when, when one of our responses isn't appropriate, we don't necessarily have the flexibility to find another one. We just have to recycle one of the ones we happen to have. <laughs> like, you know, like we're talking about back all, all those years ago when that poor man at Ananda Village was inordinately fond of women. And the response, the only response people had was this harsh judgmentalism that they just picked up from when they were part of the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> you know? And they just, they just weren't able to tell. So actually, Swami's actual words later, he was very irate. He said, you went after a gnat with a baseball bat. That's how he described it. You know, because they didn't have an, a sense of what was appropriate in the circumstances. First of all, you know, they did not have a right to take him on. You know, it was an arrogant, self-righteous thing to take him on in the first place. And then, and then they just went after him as if, you know, that all of life depended on just squashing this poor soul. And it didn't, you know. I mean, it was not a great situation, but it was just not the tragedy that they were making it into. But they didn't have a concept of what was appropriate. What was appropriate for them, even in this context, um, what was appropriate for them personally. Um, there was a, a time when Swami was... Uh, we were in Oregon for some reason. There was a number of us who had positions of responsibility. And somebody who was more relatively new at their position was asking Swami a lot of sort of basic questions about how you make decisions. And uh, this is when Swami said something which was so valid. He said, um, if you're in a position of responsibility, it's presumptuous not to take your own spiritual well-being into account. It's a very subtle thought. And he said, you know, just, you can't come just from position. You also, have to take, you also have to take yourself into account. You're a human being there. And what you do will have consequences for you. And, you know, you, none of us are so free that we cannot think for a minute about how this will impact me if I make this decision. And then as an example, he said, you might have a circumstance in which, you know, the right decision would be a rather stern one. He said, but if it's bad for you spiritually to be stern, he said, don't be stern. Make a charitable decision instead. Because it's presumptuous not to take yourself into account. That's how people in positions of authority end up becoming just horrible at it, and it ruins them. Because they don't think about what is right for them also. So the other reason Swami was irate with those hot-headed youngsters was it was, uh, it was not good for them to be so judgmental and self-righteous. You know, they had no position uh, and they had no uh, purity of their own consciousness that would have allowed them to stand like that in judgment of their own brother. It was themselves they were judging and that was just, it wasn't good for them spiritually to be irate like that. Um, does that all make sense? So, so that's where, you know, what is appropriate in Master's case, he was able to think entirely and only what was appropriate for the devotee. But in our case, we have to think what's also what's appropriate for me. Um, for myself spiritually, for my position. Swami used the word once. I, I, there was this situation I was involved in and this person was just, somebody wrote to Swami just all about these things I'd done and I said, Swamiji, she, I, and this is, uh, 
I said, it just, the whole thing, it had nothing to do with them. I, I worked out the situation very well with the one person involved. And this is just her from the sidelines, just analyzing the situation. It had nothing to do with it. And then he said the words, so she's just meddling. I said, yeah, she's just meddling. It's not her business. I meddle a lot. M-E-D-D-L-E, meddle. I mean, that's been a fault of mine, too, that I meddle in business that isn't mine. It's taken me a while to realize, oh, I don't have to, I don't have to do that. I still do it. I did it yesterday and the day before. <laughs> it's, a, it's a failing of mine. I just think that everybody's business is my business. I'm better than I used to be. But that's why Swami said that, oh, she's meddling. Yeah, I've never forgot it because it stayed. Oh, this just isn't appropriate for me even to have an opinion. I wish I didn't. <laughs> okay, for he wasn't harsh. He was only appropriate, which is quite another thing. He was kindly disposed toward everyone. And that's the difference. I mean, if you're harsh, you know, harshness is a whole different... It's not merely that you behave sternly, that you're, it's that you're harsh. You, you have a, a, a manner that is tough on everyone. You don't, you don't say about a harsh person, oh, he's so kind. He's harsh. That's who he is. Okay, but Master, he said, he was kindly disposed toward everyone. He didn't have a harsh attitude. His only aim was to help. He never corrected anyone, moreover, unless that person himself has to be guided. Now that is another big point. That's where also meddling comes in, too. Otherwise, he might overlook even the most glaring defects. One day he visited the monk's dining room. The luncheon dishes, luncheon dishes hadn't yet been washed, and the table, besides, was an utter mess. In our defense, I might add that the dining room itself was no inducement to housekeeperly pride. <laughs> Somebody must have laughed when he came up with that pride. I'm sure he was sitting there trying to think of, how do I describe it in a way that's accurate but not too unkind? So he says that dining room itself was no inducement to housekeeperly pride. <laughs> I can just see him. I know because I write. I can see him at his computer chuckling when he comes up with that one. When you write, you have strange moments. Inducement to housekeeperly pride. Situated as it was in the basement without windows, a single light bulb dangled loose on a wire from the center of the ceiling and provided the only light. I mean, it's a, it just sounds god-awful. You know, this is in Mount Washington, too. The monks were <clears throat> not given the best quarters. In an attempt to create a cheerful atmosphere, <laughs> someone had painted the walls an almost painfully bright yellow. <laughs> had the master been the stern disciplinarian, however, that superficial people sometimes considered him, he would certainly have seized on this situation to give us a thorough scolding for this disorder. Instead, he gazed about him with a kindly expression and remarked, it could be worse. <laughs> and it's a beautiful example, isn't it? I mean, there they were. They were living in a slovenly manner, in, you know, in the house of God and so on. It could be worse. It's just because he wasn't harsh. He was appropriate. There was just, for various reasons, who knows what the reasons were, there was no reason for it. But also, he, this story of he himself asked to be guided, that's the, also the key point. You know, you turn your life over to Master. The Master says, open your heart to me. You know, I, open your heart to me and I will take, what is the line? I will take charge of your life. Yeah. 
yeah, I will enter and take charge of your life. So you have to think about that. And if you do, then you've given him permission and he will always treat you. Okay, shall I go on? These are just, these stories are, they stand on their own. 54. The master's reactions were, as I said, appropriate, never never motivated by personal feeling. Once when he was still relatively young, he was late for a lecture and set off at a run to keep the appointment. Someone urged him, now don't be nervous. One can run nervously, the master replied, or one can run calmly, but not to run when one has to is to be lazy. (laughs) But uh, Swami just, I mean, it's talked about how in another part he was saying how the Catholic monasteries put a great emphasis on comportment. You keep your hands in your sleeves and you never walk fast. I mean, you're supposed to look like you're calm all the time. Swami tells the story of visiting some nuns and the woman who was giving the mature was talking in hushed, hushed, reverent tones. And this is the chapel where we worship. This is how Swami always says it. This is the chapel where we worship the baby Jesus, like this. And then he said somebody walked in with a box of chocolates and the nun said, oh, chocolates, just like that. (laughs) So it's, now I'm behaving like a nun. And now I'm actually being myself. You know, it's not how we're behaving, it's who we actually are on the inside. And spiritually speaking, that's tremendously important. Well, because I'm telling such old stories, I, I, I've always been a little reactive. Don't, no comments from anyone who knows me well. Just let it stand. I've always been a little reactive. And, um, or sometimes more than a little reactive. And I used to be worse. And when I was in my early 20s and I was working for Swami as his secretary and we were living at Ananda Village and I was at the market one day and I don't know what happened, but I was not happy about something. And I was expressing myself with my usual energetic response. And uh, someone thought that it was too much and they said to me, you shouldn't be behaving like that, you're Swami's secretary. And I, I just hate that. I can't stand that kind of, you know, we have to be pious because of who we're trying to impress. And so in an even more louder, agitated voice, I said, I am his secretary and I'm MB- I am behaving like this. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we, the... the, the um, the, the phrase, get over it, hadn't really become popular, so I couldn't say it. <laughs> but it was implied. If I had known it, I would have said it. I mean, what are, you, what are you supposed to say to that? I mean, what they were actually saying is, calm down, girl, calm down, which was an appropriate remark. They just chose an unfortunate way to say it to me. Yeah, which is you're supposed to have, you're supposed to appear a certain way. So Now, that was quite different when Swami told me how to treat people because I was representing him. That was quite different. You must treat people as I would treat them. Oh, well, that's obvious because they're talking to me in order to talk to him and I have to be appropriate. But it was just me all by myself with my dear friends losing it in a big way in a public place. It was just me. I mean, what can I say? I, I couldn't be different just because I, was, I had a role to play. Because, boy, once you start down that slope, you need to be different because you should be different. And I was representing Swami. And we're always representing Master at all times. And we should always have that in our consciousness. I'm Master's disciple, and I should do him proud. But that's quite different than what will people say if you appear to be a little uncentered. Because then you start suppressing yourself, and you start getting really mixed up. 
Okay, any other comments or thoughts? And someday I'll get out of the early 70s. Uh, number 55. <laughs> his, way of, his way of training, including helping people to work out their own wrong attitudes rather than merely telling them they must change. Okay, that to me, I, I put a note here that's really important to me. And then he tells the story about the ranchy schoolboys, which we'll go to in a moment. Swamiji commented, this is a pet peeve of mine, I admit it, but I have to say it because I think it's important to be said. Swamiji commented that those two books uh, that SRF puts out of The Divine Romance and the other one of the uh, Man's Eternal Quest, which I know many people really, really like. And I, you know, I have my own relationship with SRFs and so I have my own thing. But Swamiji himself said, and I'll quote him exactly, I can't read those books, he said, because it, it doesn't sound like Master. He said, it's, he said the, the, and then he, he, talks, he talked a little bit about writing, has talked a little bit about writing, about how the rhythm of speech, the rhythm of sentences, puts across a certain vibration. And how he talked about when he wrote The Path, when he was t- talking about the stories that Dr. Lewis told, he had verbatim transcript of Dr. Lewis's um, conversations, but when it was printed, it didn't sound like Dr. Lewis because the written word is different than the spoken word. The spoken word, you can put all kinds of nuance in and people hear it and feel it. A lot of magnetism is being exchanged and sometimes you put those words down and it, it doesn't sound like it anymore. Um, there's a, in, the, um, in the movie My Cousin Vinny, which is a really funny movie about a, about a judge in a court, which during the 12 years of the lawsuit, every time we'd get really depressed, we'd watch My Cousin Vinny. Um, I watched it so often that we all could actually almost recite the dialogue. But there's a point in there where these kids are, are um, they, they, they come into this little store after a crime has been committed. No, excuse me, before a crime has been committed, but their car looks like it and they get arrested. And so they don't even, they don't even know what's going on. Um, and so they're interviewed, he's interviewed. And at some point it turns out that he, he thinks because he accidentally walked out with a can of sardines or something that he didn't pay for, so he thinks he's being arrested for shoplifting. And somehow, in the course of being interviewed by the policeman, the policeman starts talking about this man who'd been shot. The clerk has been shot. And so he sort of starts talking about this clerk who was shot. And the guy says, I shot the clerk? Like that. And then it goes again, and then he says, I shot the clerk! But then the transcript reads, I shot the clerk. (laughs) So then the whole thing cascades and gets more and more ridiculous because the spoken and the written word are very, very different. (laughs) But it just says, I shot the clerk. So it's a confession and, you know, it's it's all running like that. Well, Swamiji said that the people who edited, and I don't know whether he was talking about Tara or who he was talking about because I don't know who put those books together, he said they, di- they didn't have any sense of poetry or music or they'd heard, ma- I mean, they didn't have a sense of vibration and rhythm is what he meant by that. And so even though they, they had heard Master speak, they didn't understand the importance of making it feel and sound like him vibrationally. And then there's another aspect of it too, which somebody was, was, had excerpted something recently that they took off of like old magazines. It wasn't from... SRF, and I don't know where those old magazines, but it was also from a, a written talk. And I, was, I, I didn't like the reading, and I was trying to, 
I can understand why I didn't like it. I was trying to think about it later. And uh, first of all, the, in the 30s and 40s, they weren't recording. So it was, it was written down. And even if you're taking shorthand, to think about this, because I've taken lots of notes too, you take down the main ideas. Right, you know, don't, don't uh, meditate more deeply, uh, do the right thing, you know, uh, give your heart to the master. But you'll take down the main ideas. You won't take down all the nuances that he might spin around those ideas. And so when you then just type it up again, you'll just get a whole series of declarative sentences. You won't get, and this is why Swami said it didn't sound like Master, because Master was kindly all around it. And he, he gave you ways of doing it rather than just the, the actual do this, do this. And so I was looking at this old piece of writing, which was not actually his writing. It was a transcript of a talk. It was just a series of commands. Just one after the other. And of course they were all good things, but the, but the subconscious and the vibrational effect of just constantly being told to do things doesn't necessarily make you feel capable of doing them. And in fact, you, you end up feeling just the opposite. You just feel that all of these beautiful things, that's all, I'm supposed to do this, I'm supposed to do that, I'm supposed to do that, there's no reaching out and sort of embracing you and understanding your reality. And I was, I was contrasting to some of that old material with the way uh, uh, the essence of self-realization is written. Because it's, it's very elevated teachings, but perhaps you want to, you could consider. If you try this, you will find and not do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. And so there's a very subtle um, transmission of a certain attitude that you don't even know you're picking it up. But you just gradually get an impression of what his personality was like. I've never read either of those books because I, I have never been able to read them. I, I always think these must be inspiring books. It's just, I'm so like not connected to that branch of Master's family, and I, I admit to being extreme. But I found it interesting when Swami said the same thing, because he could hear Master's voice. And when he would read what Master supposedly said, it just, it didn't, it didn't sound like Master to him. Tricky, huh? Yeah, and I know that a lot of you may be very inspired by those books. What can I say? But it's something to keep in mind. Let's phrase it this way. If you're reading the Guru's words and it begins to make you feel like an inadequate devotee, seriously. People have said, and I've never read God Speaks to Arjuna. Arjuna Speaks to... Who Speaks to God? God, what does it say? God God talks to Arjuna. I can't remember. Yeah, the Bhagavad Gita Commentary. I, this, is, this is not anything I would say, but Jyotish and Devi, who would teach, have taught that course. They, they taught, somebody came to them who had only read that book. And they said the more they read it, the more they felt like they couldn't succeed on the spiritual path. I mean, I, then maybe it was just one individual. And, you know, I've, I have read some of that book, and some parts of it are really very, very good. And much of it may be great, for all I know. I don't. I don't need to read it because I get inspiration from other sources. So I'm not really telling you what to do. But it's something to consider. 
you know. Um, anyway, so he, this is just this first sentence. His way of training included helping people to work out their own wrong attitudes rather than merely telling them that they must change. You see how the difference is? If you're always just being told to change, you know, how do you go about doing that? You have to be one to that. You have to be inspired. You have to be guided. So be ve- if you ever feel discouraged, then because it's Satan who... Dis- I found these, those words from Swami. I was talking to someone actually about this also. It was uh, slightly, slightly different, but the same basic thing. Swamiji said, you know, Master always left us feeling encouraged and capable. He said, Satan makes you feel you can't do it. Master always made us feel encouraged and capable and that we could succeed. And so if any part of you or anything you're reading or hearing makes you feel discouraged, you're you're either not reading it right or you're reading the wrong thing. We must be very, very careful about that. It's extremely important. It's the point is not to crush us. The point is to expand our understanding of who we are. You see how different that is? So if you're not feeling expanded by it, and you know, Swami could be um, tough when he needed to be, but uh, you always, he was always tough and he was always kindly. You could feel it. You know, even if, if it was a little... Um, oh, once he scolded me for something, I actually I couldn't breathe. God, he caught me so off guard and I, it was so unexpected and it was so, so accurate. I won't even say what it is because it was just too accurate. It was too accurate and it was too tough and I li- really, I couldn't breathe. I had, to, I had to walk out and just gasp until I could get air. I mean, he just went whack. I mean, that didn't happen to me very often because I, I couldn't take it. But when he did, it was... <laughs> yeah, it was a bad moment. Okay. So he did it when he needed to, but still, it, you were fine. You know, you just went on after that. I'm going to read, finish reading this one so that we can consider it done. Does anybody have any comments about what I just said? It just makes it awful difficult to stand up for your own will. Makes it difficult to stand up for your own will? For your own will. I mean, it's not good for your will to, to uh, address people that way, the way that uh, you were describing. Right. Yeah, it well, it's 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 hard to know what to do with it because we can only take so much. At our ranchy school, he said, two of the boys were always fighting together. Finally, in order to cure them of this tendency, I had them sleep in the same bed. Master could just do so many fun things, couldn't he? From then on, it was either constant war or grudging peace. In time, they learned to get along reasonably well together. Can't you see these poor two boys having to get into the same bed at night? When I saw they'd become friends, more or less, I decided to try, to try them a little further. One night, as they were sleeping soundly, I stole to the head of their bed, stood silently, then reached down and rapped one of them sharply on the forehead. Now, bear in mind, Master was, what, 20 years old, 22, 23? He was a very young man. He was barely older than the boys. Rapped one of them on the forehead. He sat up angrily. Why did you do that? He demanded of his companion. I didn't do anything, the other protested indignantly. A few more sleepy words, and then both of them lay back again. When they were once more asleep, I gave the other one a smart rap on the forehead. This time it was he who sat up, furious. I told you I didn't do anything, he shouted. They were all set to do battle when, looking up, they saw me smiling down at them. 
Oh, they exclaimed sheepishly, you. <laughs> From then on, they became the best of friends. <laughs> Esther, could, Esther could purge these things out of you, which is also what was going on. You know, he could just, he'd just draw the poison out one way or another, and then you were free. <laughs> yes, Tanda. I just like that, that one line, looking up, they saw me smiling down. Yeah. Right, look up. Yeah, exactly. Look up. Oh, you. Well, yeah. Oh, you. <laughs> Very good. Okay. I think that brings us to the close tonight. So we went from number 49 through number 55. These are good stories, aren't they? You really makes the point by the end of it.